Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this powerful, rich word, and we pray that we would understand it where there are different uh, interpretations of some verses within the larger Christian community. May we um, get the main points that you want us to understand and to apply. Help us to see Jesus, our only help, our only rescue. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So do you ever feel torn between two impulses? On the one hand, you have this conviction that you're supposed to do what is healthy and good and right. And on the other hand, you have those temptations to do what is not healthy and not so great for you. Well, a few weeks ago, as I was leaving Costco, I stood out in front of their food stand and I saw that a hot dog was only $1.25, or $1.50, I guess, and I felt tremendous pull to buy a hot dog. Now, for most of us, hot dogs aren't a great thing to have as part of our regular diet. It's not for me. Uh, but for me in particular, it, it's basically two to three days of sodium once you add all the fixins. So I stood there and I thought, yeah, but I really want it. And it seemed like an eternity, but at some point I just ran and went to the car and rejected that temptation. Uh, in the language of Gollum, I was saying, we want the precious and we must have it. But I went the other way. On the other hand, today is Super Bowl Sunday and everything in moderation, right? Well, this is a lighter example, perhaps a sillier one, of the battle between warring desires. Again, doing what we know we shouldn't do and not doing what we know we should do. And on a more serious note, it could be drugs or alcohol or certainly food, right? To a gluttonous uh, degree when we struggle with that or just some other broad addiction or particular one, a bad habit, invasive thoughts, Patterns of relating to our spouses and our families, things that we keep repeating. It can be any, any of these things. And we sometimes run away from what Jesus wants, and instead we, as an old commercial said, obey our thirst. As we get into our passage, I want to give a little bit of background by contrasting Romans 6, which we looked at the past two weeks, and now, today, Romans 7. Chapter 6, we could say this. It's very optimistic in a way. It says, you have been set free from sin's mastery if you are joined to Jesus. And you now, because of your union with him, you serve a new master. You're going to serve one or the other, sin or Jesus. But in Christ, you have been set apart to serve him. And so Paul says in Romans 6, obey him, follow him, and live out your union with him in a manner that is consistent, that shows whose you are. Now, it also, Romans 6 recognizes, but especially Romans 7 does, that we fall off the wagon, as it were, all over the place sometimes. But we're not to live there. We're not to live in that place where we've fallen off the wagon. We are to leave there, to leave that sin and to go back to Christ, to whom we belong. And so in Romans 6, it says, reckon yourselves alive, reckon yourselves new, count yourselves as Christ's people and be consistent 
by living out that relationship. So I think it's very clear that Romans 6 is anti-defeatist. It speaks to Christians when we just say, ah, we can't change, we can't grow. This says, no, you can. Ah, but then we come to Romans 7, which is in a way far more complex. And I think if chapter 6 guards against defeatism, Romans 7 then comes in and guards against triumphalism or a kind of inattentiveness to our potential to fall away. You see, as we put Romans 6 and 7 together, Paul is saying, sin no longer reigns over you. It is not your master. However, sin is still present. Sin still reigns. It no longer reigns. Uh, Rather, it remains. It no longer reigns, but it still remains. And here's an example of what I think we're getting into here. Somebody, when I was, we were newly married, so was a while ago, an old, old friend from college, called me, and he he was a strong believer, and and some months prior, maybe a year prior, he had shared with me some struggles that he was going through, basically confessing it was a beautiful thing, he wanted help. And then he called me, maybe, again, six months or a year later, and he said, you know what, I just wanted to let you know I'm now completely beyond that sin. And I said, I don't know if you want to say that. Because when we let our guard down and a kind of spiritual pride can leak into us, that's when our sin sneaks up on us, when we least expect it. And so Paul says, don't be defeatist, but don't be naive, don't be triumphalistic. Now as we walk through Romans 7, at least the portion mostly that we heard read today, I want to let you know a little uh, controversy among Christians, all in good faith and with good cheer. But there are different ways to approach what Paul says in Romans 7. One school of thought says that Paul is primarily speaking in the first person, I, as a representative of Israel. He's talking about the experience of the people of God in the Old Testament under the law. That's one school of thought. Another is that Paul is talking very personally about his pre-converted self before he knew Jesus. And he's sort of contrasting in Romans 6 and then later in 8, the sort of really intense struggle that he talks about in Romans 7. And then the third interpretation, which is quite uh, broad in in the Reformed tradition and Protestant tradition, uh, says hey, take it at face value. (laughs) Paul is talking about his experience as a Christian. Uh, Now, I think no matter what approach you take, I think here's the point. We end up basically at the same place. What Paul has to say here may borrow from those different overall interpretive frameworks, but it speaks to our experience in a very personal way of the Christian life. We, boy, if you've been a Christian for a while, especially, you know what it's like to have the battle inside. And we can even say that in some ways the battle really gets raging when you become a Christian, as you grow in Christ. So we're going to look at a few themes here as we walk through this. There there are others, but I want to narrow it down to three. First is our relation to the law and to Christ. Let's put our struggles in the context of what was not read to you this morning, but it is in our bulletins, Romans 7, 1 to 6. 
Paul says just quickly, when a husband dies, his wife is no longer legally bound to him. And she is thus free to marry another man. In other words, in that case, Paul says bluntly, you're not, that woman's not an adulteress. And Paul then uses that to speak of our relationship to the law, but now to Christ. Verse 5, likewise, my brothers and sisters, you have died to the law and you belong to another. And so becoming a Christian changes our relationship and our allegiance, our death with Christ as we were buried in baptism, releases us from the law and weds us to Christ. Now we have to be careful here. We are not under law in that we don't obey the law to earn acceptance. This was a common trap in the Old Testament. The law is not a system of trying to prove ourselves, that we are valuable, that we belong, and so forth. And I think we all have that tendency. We don't use the law as a ladder to climb up to God in a way that secular people even do. No, we know that Jesus' perfect life in his fulfilling the law, he becomes the ladder. He climbed down to us and brings us up to God. And so, as the Old Testament Christian might say, they were yoked to the law, yoked to it, bound to it. Paul says, no, you are yoked to Christ who fulfilled the law, and in him you bear fruit for God. Now, one of Paul's central concerns in this chapter is to say, well, is the law, can we be lawless? Can we go do whatever we want? No, Paul is saying that being joined to Christ curtails our trying to relate to God on the grounds of our obedience. It puts us over on a different ground, what Christ has done. And so it means that as we go through this chapter, we more and more want to do what the law says, not to prove ourselves, not to earn anything, but to please God and serve our neighbor. And I'll tell you, just think for a moment about even from secular people, how the law can be used for the wrong spiritual purposes. I knew years ago um, an atheist woman who was very secular, she was atheist, and one day I was at a dinner party with her and she announced her atheism very strongly, but also then announced that we basically should try to be good moral people. And, of course, the larger question is on what grounds, if there's no God, but that, that's not the point of this sermon. And, and it was very much like, well, if there's some sort of cosmic heaven or whatever, I want to know I get there by how good I am and what I do. And this person had, has a lot of rectitude, tries to do things right. But I sensed in that conversation a very dark impulse. I'm not like other people. That is beneath me because I'm above them. I wouldn't do certain things because it would cut against my pride. And so again, this can be a mentality that exists not only in people who are religious, but in secular people. And so what we find is that the law is given. It is a good law from God. The law is holy, and it exposes sin. So Paul says, through the law I come to know sin. In other words, 
since true colors are unmasked, I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said, the monster is, is dragged out to the lights. <laughs> That's a very vivid imagery. Paul says in verse 7b of Romans 7, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. And so the law, again, it, it exposes sin, but Paul says more than that, it actually stirs up the desire to sin. An example, we have a street out here by the church, maybe over here, Aliso Creek, I think it is, and a couple of times in the last month, I've been driving down and a sign flashed at me, slow down. <laughs> now, I wasn't going that fast, like three miles an hour over the speed limit. So the law told me to back off, but we can think of examples in life when the law told us not to do something and we want to do that very thing because it says don't do it. There are so many examples of that. I mean, I'm sure you can think back over your high school years but even to the present day, when we're told not to do something is when we want to do it. So the law is good, it exposes sin, but it also stirs it up. And Paul gives the example of covetousness. He says the law does, tells us not to covet, but then he says, sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. Again, it's the sign that says don't covet and you end up coveting more. And Paul goes to great lengths to say the law is good and it is holy, but it, sin used the law as a foothold to produce all sorts of coveting. And so the law was not the originator of sin, but it was the occasion for sinning. It couldn't stop us. It couldn't ultimately change us, or it might change our behavior, but not our hearts. Now, here's a really interesting question, I think. Why does Paul use the example of not coveting? He goes right to the 10th commandment. Well, it could be said that the 10th commandment, first of all, is something that Paul struggled with. He struggled with envy toward others, perhaps. But in a way, the, the command not to covet is one where we can clean up our outward selves, right? We can show other people that we're not covetous in terms of what we say and don't say, but that doesn't solve the inward motions of our hearts, right? And as we grow older in our faith, friends, I, and I used to miss, I've said this before, I used to think in high school, junior high, well, I don't covet, because I don't, I mean, I can see a car that I admire, but I don't have to have that car. That's never been the motion of my heart. But then somewhere along the line as I was growing in my faith, I realized, ah, it's much deeper than that. I can be envious of the acclaim that someone has or the position or the attention someone gets in a, in a circle of relationships. I don't quite maybe have the position or, or uh, connection that maybe others do. And, that can be very subtle, but very dark. We know that. And so Paul is saying, this summary of all the commandments shows you the utter sinfulness of sin. It's not just some external thing. You see, it goes further. Covetousness, the book of Colossians says, is idolatry. It is putting some created thing above the creator and wanting that thing and craving it and being really bummed 
when others have it more than you do. And you start to feel self-pity. The Heidelberg Catechism, a very helpful teaching tool, defined covetousness as the desire for what God forbids and not being content with how God has blessed us. Paul is guilty, and friends, we are too, and we know it. Now let me tell you how this played out in the life of uh, whom we call St. Augustine many centuries ago. In his world-changing confessions, many say it's the first autobiography ever written, he tells the pretty famous story, but it's infamous, about a time when he and his 16-year-old adolescent friends kind of cooked up a plan. There was a, a man who had a pear tree on his property, and they said, let's go steal some pears. So they went and got their bags or baskets or whatever, took all these pears, and one of the things he commented on is the pears didn't look that great, <laughs> and they didn't taste that great. They just threw them to the pigs. But then Augustine made this observation. My desire was to enjoy not what I stole, but the excitement, again, the earlier sign illustration, the excitement of doing what was wrong. He continued, could I enjoy what was forbidden for no other reason except that it was forbidden? <laughs> All I tasted in them was my own iniquity, which I enjoyed very much. Now, he learned that probably looking back, as he looked back on his earlier years, but that's a mature perspective. And so for Paul, his struggle, his idol was his own moral rectitude and effort, trusting in himself and his own righteousness, like that atheist person I mentioned, but with a belief in God. And so Paul just recognizes that the law shows the exceeding sinfulness of sin and he's taking us toward the end, our inability to save ourselves. There was a show, the Bob Newhart show, a long time ago. <laughs> I guess it's on Nickelodeon. It's certainly on YouTube, this clip. But Bob Newhart was a deadpan, straight-faced comedian of sorts. And there's a clip that made the rounds. And I actually heard of a few psychologists actually appreciating what the clip showed. It, it seems really serious. A woman comes in to meet with Bob Newhart, who's a psychologist or psychiatrist, deadpan the whole time, and she just pours out her heart and says, I, I really have this dreadful fear of being buried alive in a box. Hmm. And he says, well, tell me about that. Has anyone ever pushed that on you? Is that, have you ever gotten close to being buried alive in a box? Well, no but it, it, it almost ruins my life. I can't go through tunnels, you know, I can't be in a house because it's sort of a boxy thing. And then Newhart looks at her and he says, you know, take out your pad of paper and a pen and I'm going to tell you something. And she's seriously looking at him and he says, are you ready? She says, yeah. And he says, stop it. The whole skit is him telling her, stop it. Stop being this way. Now, Again, there's a time and a place for that. We need to sometimes be confronted with blunt words, but we know the problem in that. It wasn't only that he wasn't compassionate, but a bare command can't change our hearts. It can't liberate us. It can't bring love into our lives that pushes out fear. And we can think of our own uh, struggles when 
when we're disappointed in someone and we've forgiven them, it can still be hard to show warmth. It's tempting to distance ourselves. We may say, I forgive them, but we do it through gritting teeth. You see, what has to happen is we are captivated by the wonder and the beauty of Christ, forgiving us, loving us, and that goes so much further than a simple stop it. Well, we've seen a little bit here in our relationship between our relation to the law and Christ, but Paul then elaborates, and there's a lot more that he says than I can say here, but he talks about the war within. Verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave under sin. And Paul then, in the passage, says he doesn't completely understand what he's doing because I do not practice, he says, what I want to do, but I actually do what I hate. Conversely, I don't always do what I want to do. So maybe a comment is, I wish, I, for us, is I wish I I hadn't passed up that opportunity to love and to show mercy. And Paul then reveals the conflict at a deeper level. He says, on the one hand, the good I want to do, I do not do. And again, I do um, evil at times. Evil, he says, lies close at hand. And let's think about how that could be for us. There's what the Old Testament calls murmuring and grumbling rather than gratitude. Most of us are guilty of that even in this past week. There's delayed obedience, you know, doing good things, but maybe waiting too long. To such a degree, our procrastination hurts others. There's, again, resentment. There's passive aggressiveness. There's avoiding others. Or doing only what is explicitly asked and not doing it with a willing heart. We know this in raising children. <laughs> You're like, you, you kind of did the right behavior, but there's more to it, right? And then there's self-justifications when our wrongdoing is confronted. Or we want to pray more, we want to read our Bibles more, but it's so easy to give into spiritual sloth and distractions that pull us from what the new inner you and, and I want to do. So there's a civil war within. Paul says in verse 22, for in my inner self, that is my new self in God, in Christ, I delight in God. I delight in his law, but I see a different law. And he means there a principle in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind. And so the battle becomes more pronounced, again, when you become a Christian and you want to please Christ and know him better, but you have vestiges of sin pulling you in the other direction. And Paul almost speaks of sin as though it's not really part of his life. It is Paul's own life, but he's saying it's part of that aspect that I have died to in my union with Christ, and yet it's still there. And it still plagues me. And so our renewed selves want God, we want to love His law, but our old sinful selves reemerge. And so what Paul is telling us in this section in Romans 7 is that we have to hold on to our deepest identity in Christ and again live from that. Tim Keller said, when we progress against many bad habits and attitudes, we will grow more aware of the rebellious, selfish roots within us. 
the holier we become, the more we cry out about our unholiness. And friends, we know this by observing mature Christians who have walked decades with the Lord. We've had several folks in this church who have gone to heaven, and in their latter years, they were so humble. We would all say, oh, you're holy, and you know, you, you, you're, so, uh, you're such a follower of Christ, and they would laugh, oh yeah, <laughs> if you only knew, you know, because I've learned that though I'm growing in grace, I see how much more I need grace. And so there's a little bit there on the war within, but I want to talk here in closing on the help we get for the war within. You see, as we read, had this section read to us, there's much more that could be said about the back and forth, but we, we kind of get the gist. And when we hear this back and forth, this kind of ping-ponging between the new inner person and what we want versus our sinful impulses, the fallen flesh that we still struggle with, as you hear this read, as you've read it over the years perhaps, how does it make you feel? I know, <laughs> exhausted, a little weary. We might think, what then, in the midst of this civil war, torn between these different opposing realities in my life, what am I supposed to do? And Paul asks the question much more bluntly and desperately, and then he just blurts out an answer. What a wretched man, a fallen man, a sinful man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? You see, that's the right question because our spiritual pride, which is the, at the root of so many of our issues, that puts us in a bind because then it keeps us from asking for help from others. We hide from other people when we're hurting. Most importantly, and sadly, we hide from God and we don't ask for help from God. On a lighter note, there was a meme going around a while, a while ago that, that asked, which is the hardest for you to say? And it lists things. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Worcestershire sauce. Uh, uh, that could be maybe the main one. My conspiracy, conspiracy theorist friend was right after all. <laughs> And then, so seriously, I need help. We all know that that's a hard thing to say, and yet Paul says it. Where does my help come from? Who will deliver me? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Christians never stop needing him. And friends, when our hearts truly cry out about our wretchedness and and lostness and fallenness, even though we belong to Jesus, we know those parts remain. It helps us to know that help and liberation come from Jesus. That we, uh, awareness helps us to look away from ourselves, to look to Christ and start to take him more and more seriously. You see, Jesus has done for us what the law, the beautiful law, weakened by sin, can never do. This is how the message summed up our last verse, paraphrased it. He acted, that is Jesus, to set things right with his life and his death and his resurrection. 
He exposed the contradictions where I want to serve God with my heart and mind that has been redeemed, but am pulled by the influence of sin to do something different. And so when you face that conflict, a conflict of interests, as it were, cry out with Paul to Jesus, oh, wretched man or woman that I am, who will rescue me? Who will deliver me? Who will draw me out of this pattern that I've fallen back into? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Look away from yourselves and to him, friends. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this incredible portrait. There's so much here, but it, we understand the thrust of it. We feel it with Paul. Our lives are in a battle. And the battle actually increases, Lord, when we grow more in you because we begin to see our sin in the light of who Christ is. And we realize that though sin doesn't reign anymore, boy, does it remain at times. And so we pray that we would continue to die to the things that don't define us. You define us. And I pray for anyone here, whether it's an addiction or an invasive, scary thought or, or a pattern in relation, relating, in whether it's spiritual apathy or resentment, it could be any list of things. Help us to know that, yes, that is the sin that remains, but we can look to Christ and he is our rescue and our deliverance still for some of us, after all these decades of knowing you, we can never stop learning to trust you and cling to you and find our salvation in you. As we come to the table, we thank you for Jesus and all he's done for us. As we grow in holiness, help us to repent of our unholiness. And we do this all from the wonderful, wonderful perspective of our union with a new life in Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.